morning, everybody. Merry, Merry Christmas. Can we do it? Is it too early? Merry Christmas. Merry, are we good? Um, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met yet, and uh, I'm going to start off by referencing a mythical giant in our culture today known as Captain Obvious. Um, Captain Obvious says things like, you know, it's cold outside when you go outside and it's cold, right? Or people look for things from Captain Obvious Please make sure the elevator is there before stepping in. Or wet paint, unless it has dried already. Uh, there's commercials with Captain Obvious. Uh, did you know you were born on your birthday? It's kind of coincidental, right? Or you've got these kind of things. Dad wins Father's Day contest. There's a big surprise that a dad won that. Maybe uh, caution water on road during rain. And the last one... Caution, wet floor in a pool, like a baby pool or a fountain, I guess, anyway. Captain Obvious strikes again. I was thinking about Captain Obvious because I want to do the exact opposite today. Uh, we're going to talk about wisdom. We're going to talk about wisdom. And one of the authors that I was reading this week said this about wisdom. Again, think about how different this is from Captain Obvious. Wisdom does not reveal its full meaning at first glance. It does not yield its treasures to the casual inquirer. Wisdom requires thought, reflection, and meditation. True wisdom will only dawn on us slowly because we have much to learn and quite possibly just as much to unlearn. That was a good definition, a good framework for what we're going to talk about today. We actually probably are inundated with a lot of Captain Obvious. And we, we may be losing even the capacity or the ability to, to slowly meander and be patient enough to arrive at a place of true wisdom. We're too impatient for wisdom to yield its full fruits. Now, what are we doing? We've been in a series now. This is our third week, and I'm going to do today a little different than I've done the last two weeks, so it'll feel a little different. But we've been looking at these divine attributes that are more than attributes, right? Uh, we've been talking about this recipe for the Trinity that you need the, you need the Hebrew Bible, but then you also have the arrival of Jesus and everything that he did and said, and then you have Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the apostles, the leaders of the early church began to find language to talk about this God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that language doesn't really get solidified in the church for a few hundred years. And so it's really interesting, fascinating, I would say marvelous, to, to read through the New Testament and appreciate the way the authors are relying on the, the, the framework, the worldview, the categories of the Hebrew Scriptures to talk about the one and only true God. And so we've done that with the word of God, right? Uh, and we looked at some passages and, and just how John begins his gospel. And the word of God shows up in the Old Testament and, and there are passages we looked at. Is it, is it Yahweh? Is it God himself? Or is it the word of God? What is it? It's blurry. And of course, John begins his gospel in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And John's leaning into this. We did this with the name of God last week, and we'll do it to a degree, but a little differently today with the wisdom of God. But I'm trying to lean into the, 
the meditative journey that wisdom invites us on. I'm trying to not be Captain Obvious this morning. And we'll start in, we'll read a couple passages uh, just so you can see this a little bit, just to give you a flavor. Uh, the Old Testament scriptures, if you pay attention, there is a section that's kind of organized around this idea of wisdom literature. And one of the hallmark books is the book of Proverbs. And so Proverbs has much to say about wisdom. And in Proverbs and in some of the prophets and other places of scripture, the, the idea of wisdom wisdom of God is, is very much tied to creation. And we're going to spend time with that idea this morning. The first verse comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. The, word, the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Again, this is it's poetic. It's proverbial. But, it, but there's a little bit of his, the Lord is founding the earth, but he's doing it by wisdom. What is this wisdom? You keep reading, actually, wisdom is one of the unique ones where you get a clear personification in a few chapters later in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12, a very fascinating little section if you read through it, but it begins with these words, I wisdom. I mean, we've been talking about personifying these divine attributes. It happens right here. I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. Wisdom goes on to talk as if it were a person. Again, all of this is just the seedbed for the Hebrew Bible that the apostles leaned into to try to describe this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we're introduced to is this idea that God's wisdom was present at creation, ordering the world, bringing about meaning and purpose and ordering things in a way that creates the possibility of life. Uh, so rather than just looking at the phrase, the wisdom of God, and looking at a bunch of passages in the Old Testament, what I want to do is actually, since it's so often tied with the creation narrative, I want, you to, I want to spend some time allowing you to think through what God did in those seven days of creation that we would describe as wise wisdom. So I'm going to show you a, a video. It's from the Bible Project. It's seven minutes, a little longer than I might normally show I thought about trying to teach it, but I just think they visually do such a good job. And pay attention, pay attention for the language of order. How often do they talk about order or disorder? Pay attention to meaning and purpose and what wisdom is doing in the creation of our world. So here's the video. All right. Did you learn something? Is that good? Is that good? But one of the lines that they use in there that I like and I will keep using this morning is that God creates in order to bring, he, God creates to bring order so life can flourish. He's bringing order so life can flourish. He does it at creation, but then what I want to do this morning is then look at, well, what does that mean for our lives, right? And even this idea of the seventh day of rest, this, this rest that Jesus himself invites us into, right? This is a different theme, but he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That, that theme unfolds in the biblical narrative. You are in the rest of God when you find yourself in a place where you are living with both peace and purpose. I love that. Some of us know a little bit of life that's all peace and no purpose, and we're not at rest. And some of us know a little bit of life that's all purpose and no peace. We're not at rest. In Jesus, in the seventh day of creation, rest, we are invited into a place where there is 
peace and purpose. It's God's good order that allows for life to flourish. And we're going to talk about how God's order is different than we're going to talk about the wisdom from above versus the wisdom from below. (laughs) I just want to point out here, if you were with us on Wednesday nights when we went through our theme of the firstborn, it is fascinating that the latecomer, the last one on the scene, human beings are the ones who are elevated to this place of honor and authority and responsibility. It just gives us a hint, even at the very beginning of the biblical narrative, that God is going to do things in ways that are surprising to us. The latecomer, the last one on the scene, gets elevated to the highest place. Well, I want to turn then. Let's see how Paul thinks about, as he thinks back about creation and wisdom and what was going on, what, what does Paul have to say? going to read from a poem from Colossians chapter 1. I've read from it before, but you can't read this too many times. If you approach this poem as if it's just Captain Obvious telling you facts, you'll miss it. You've got to sit with it. You've got to revisit it. You can't read it too many times. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, and you're going to hear language, language. I mean, all throughout this language from Genesis 1 and all throughout the text we're going to read this morning. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if we talk about Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, what is that image that they're made in? Well, that image is Jesus. Jesus is the image of which humanity is made. (laughs) That's why we can talk about Jesus somehow in this divine mystery that he is fully God and fully human. He is the definition of what it means to be God. He reveals everything God wants us to know about him, but he also shows us is the definition of what it really means to be human, what it means to live at rest with the Father, with peace and purpose in God's perfectly ordered will, I guess, if you'll say, right? He's the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation. You'll see He's not trying to say that there was a time Jesus wasn't and then he was born and now is. He will say in verse 17, Jesus has always been. And we, we follow this theme on Wednesday nights. What he's saying when he says Jesus is the firstborn, he's tapping into the Old Testament narrative and he's saying Jesus is supreme. He's supreme. He's superior over all creation. He has the status of the firstborn. He's been elevated to the place of the firstborn. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Because he entered into our world at Christmas and died on a cross, the Father was happy to elevate him. Jesus is supreme over all creation. Verse 15, for by him, again, this sounds like what we read in Proverbs with wisdom, by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, And we also talk about how putting Jesus at the center of our lives matters. Why would we do that? Because Paul says they were also created for him. (laughs) All of this is for him, for Jesus. Verse 17, again, and just so you're not confused, he makes it clear. And he is before all things. So Jesus has always been. We talked about that in the first week. There has never been a time when there wasn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have always been this eternal community of love. And then it says, and in him all things hold together. And when we could pause on more of these, but that's when I just, in him. I mean, you get, you, again, don't captain obvious. You got to sit with it. What does it mean that in him all things hold together? 
It means that he is the rationale. (laughs) We're talking about the fundamental order that transcends and makes possible for humans to exist, things in heaven and on earth. That you could say reality is held together in an orderly way, a rationale way. And Jesus is that rationale. He is that order. John says he is the logos, right? The word. In Paul's day, the Greeks would have said, yeah, there is a rationale that holds everything together, but it's an impersonal force. It's some kind of idea. Paul says, oh, no, no, no. The rationale that holds all things together is a person. And he gave his life for you because he loves you. That's what's at the center of reality. Jesus, all things by him and for him. And then he continues, he says, Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now he's supreme over death. We'll talk about that. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Jesus is supreme over all. But what does he mean he's the firstborn from the dead? Well, We heard again and again that God created and it was good and created humans and it was very good, but I think we are all aware that what was all good is no longer all good. That the the, the way the Bible talks about this, the language that it uses to describe what is not good is sin and death. That sin and death are present in God's creation and they seek to rule and reign and dominate. There's a lot of death in the world. And things are not okay here. But what Paul says is Jesus is the head of a new human family, a new humanity that is a new creation that is transcending the barrier that is death, decay, and mortality. He's saying Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the victor over death. He reversed it. Death has no hold. You might say, well, how do I get in on this? How do I get out of the realm of sin and death and into this new humanity that Jesus is inaugurating in the church? Well, he wraps that up in verses 19 and 20. He says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Right? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's good pleasure. That's why we say, if you want to know anything about God, you look to Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace. What do we celebrate at Christmas time? That Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. As Christians, right? We, we care an awful lot about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it's, it's, it's necessary. Everything that is available to us is available because God has entered into our human story and went to the cross for us, reconciling all of creation to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. There's there's a possibility of peace now because of what Jesus has done. You could say life conquered death, and through that life, a dying cosmos is reconciled to God. It's a profound story, a hopeful story, a redemptive story. And at the center of this, I mean, read the poem again. Jesus is above all, he's before all, he's through and in all things. And this poem is just talking about Jesus. He is what it's all about. 
He's the embodiment of this wisdom that brings order so that life can flourish. Jesus calls abundant life. He has a lot to say. So I want to like lean in a little bit. We're talking about creation, but I want to lean into how this creative wisdom of God as expressed in the person of Jesus, he's the wisdom of God. (laughs) What does that then mean? What does it look like for you and I? How does that begin to play out? And one of these passages that we read back in our series where we looked at this theme of Babylon, it's a passage that I I, I find myself not even intentionally returning to, but I, I keep finding myself back in it. It's in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. I'll just read through it and say a few things, and then I'll remind you of some of the things we said about Babylon and the wisdom from below. James says, who among you is wise and understanding? In other words, who understands God's good order in a way that they are bringing about life that flourishes? Who is walking around and just seeing life blossom as they take steps in the ground? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In in other words, if if you understand God's good order, the wisdom of Jesus, then, then your life will reflect it. And I like it. He describes it as the gentleness of wisdom. That's a cool picture, word picture. But that's not how we tend to experience things as sin and death reign a little bit. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, if, if there's a lot of rivalry and strife, if you've been schooled in the ways of Babylon and you're always trying to get to the top, even if it means pushing other people down so you get there, James is warning you about that. If you have this, don't, don't, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Because this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. There's a wisdom that comes from above, and then there's a wisdom that comes from below. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. And he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There is, and you're going to hear language here that we heard in the video, there is disorder and every evil thing, right? God creates, he creates, he brings order so that life can flourish and he calls it all good. And then you get into the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and you start to get this contrast between good and evil. Evil is a violation of God's good purpose, (laughs) And what happens, why is there all this jealousy and strife and rivalry and selfish ambition? Because we've all decided to do what is wise in our own eyes with the wisdom that comes from below. And what is wise in my eyes may not be what's wise in your eyes. And so now we're in the rat race to see who gets their way first, right? I mean, that's just life on broken, corrupt planet Earth. I'll pause there. We'll come back to verses 17 and 18. But, but let, me, let me say a little bit about Babylon. We talked about Babylon as this theme that unfolds in the Bible. It's, it's really a way of capturing the kingdom that is, that is fueled by the wisdom that comes from below that challenges the kingdom of God. And we talked about how Cain, a murderer, is the founder of human civilization in the biblical story. And this embodiment of evil, if you, if you see how it plays out, this guy named Nimrod is the founder of the city of Babylon. <laughs> and that theme of Babylon just grows in the biblical narrative. And we're even told in Isaiah that the king of Babylon 
is none other than Satan himself. And if you were with us, we talked a little bit about this contrast between the demonic and the satanic. James is talking here about the demonic who bring disorder, who bring chaos, who go against the good work of God's kingdom. And if you, were, if you were with us, you remember that I said that Babylon is the place where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. And the work that the demons are doing is bringing about disorder. They're the embodiment of darkness. They're, they're threatening to undo and eat up and devour. You can, as, you, as you think about what the demons are doing, they are, they are bringing about chaos and you could say decreation. That's what they're doing. But remember, we're introduced to the Satan right away in these first few chapters of Genesis as the serpent who is crafty. And how do we understand the craftiness of the, serp the serpents? Well, what did we say? The demons come along and they bring the chaos of disorder. And then the crafty serpent, the king of Babylon, comes along and he offers you and I a false order. In the midst of the darkness, he offers us a false light. It's not real life. It's not true life. It's not the true light that shines and overwhelms the darkness, but it's better than the darkness. And so you and I run to the rescue of the satanic of Babylon, trusting in a false order rather than the true order of God that allows life to be abundant and flourish. And again, this is where it takes some wisdom for you to sit and think, what are all the false orders that I run to that promise me life but don't really deliver, right? I mean, that's pretty much any idol that we can list off that the Bible describes, all these places that we run to other than God that promise life but never deliver. And you end up in our consumeristic mentality in our culture, it's like, I need more. I need more of those experiences. I, mean, I need more stuff. I need more money. I need more, 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 because it's a false order that's better than the disorder and the chaos. But you know you're not free. And you know you're not really li living, but you've settled because the Satan has convinced you that there's just no other way. There's just no other way. One of the things the satanic does is come along and convince you there's no way for you to live abundantly. All you can really do is try to find some security when you're in the shadow of death. And you need to think about that. What, what has Jesus done? He has come along and he's eliminated death from the, from the story. I mean, if you believe in the resurrection, we no longer fear death. And if you can learn to live as if you are no longer afraid of death, then you are going to start to discover an abundant life. You're going to learn to be wise like Jesus and generous like your heavenly Father. And you're not going to be afraid of scarcity anymore. And you're not going to be worked up about what other people say because you know who you are. You're a child of God, deeply loved and forgiven. You're going to run from the false order into the true order that only God provides. Abundant life. Order so that life can flourish. That's a little bit of what that James then describes in verses 17 and 18 here. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure. And there's probably a lot of ways to understand what does it mean that it's first pure. But I was even thinking one of the things that the satanic convinces us of as we live in Babylon long enough 
is that sometimes I need to settle for evil to get what I want done. (laughs) And we find ways to justify using evil and doing evil to accomplish our own will. James says, oh, no, the wisdom from above is pure. No room for evil. just, Just look at Jesus. Everything he does is good and true and beautiful. It's pure. And then it's peaceable, right? There's peace. It's gentle. It's, it's reasonable, but, but it also could be, and I just think about this, wisdom in our day, that word reasonable can also mean willing to yield. Wow. Do I know a lot of people who are willing to yield in modern-day Babylon? I don't know. It's, James says that's wisdom. Full of mercy, good fruits unwavering, without hypocrisy. And he finishes this section by saying, in the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The way of peace is peace. The only way to arrive at peace is to be a peaceful person <laughs> and the purity of all that that is. James is talking about the wisdom that comes from above versus the wisdom that comes from below. You and I are deeply schooled in the wisdom that comes from below. We know how Babylon works, and we know that if we want to get what we want, what's wise in our own eyes, we've got to get there first, and sometimes we've got to put other people down to get there. What we're going to see as we keep going with Jesus now is what we've, we talk about frequently. The wisdom that comes from above is this radical It's embodied in Jesus. It's this radical picture of love that says, oh, no, somehow, contrary to what you've learned living in Babylon, you will find God's truest order. You will find peace and purpose. You will find joy and hope if you can learn to lower yourself and lift others up. I mean, you understand Babylon doesn't even know how to calculate that. It it can't, there's no room in the rationale and the logic of Babylon for that, but that is God's true order and true wisdom, and that is how life flourishes. So I said it, let's let's read it. I kind of jumped the gun, but I got excited. But Luke chapter 11, you know, what's Jesus' understanding of himself? Luke 11, verse 31 He's talking about Solomon. Solomon, if you know the story in the Old Testament, he kind of embodies wisdom, not, not to the degree of Jesus, but he's very wise. He's not perfect. I mean, Solomon really ends bad. He's not perfect, but he, he is wise. He's written many of what we read in the Proverbs in the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus says, the queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear from the wisdom of Solomon And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, the queen of the south will come back and judge you because you are, she traveled to hear from Solomon and Solomon was in complete wisdom. What stands before you is the embodiment of wisdom. The wisdom of God, the one who knows the true order that allows life to be abundant and flourish. Jesus says, I'm standing before you. I am wisdom. Don't miss it. Don't settle for false orders and false wisdom and false light in the midst of the chaotic darkness. Run to me, Jesus says. But as I said, this is not easy. It's not easy to learn. And I'll just give you one quick story from the disciples, and then we'll head into communion. 
It's one of my favorite stories. I probably read from it too much, but it just captures so much. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for a while, but they're still so schooled in the way of Babylon that it's hard for them to see the wisdom of God, even even when it's literally visible before them in the person of Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom. But in Mark chapter 10, you can even hear it out of the gate, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you because we are wise in our own eyes. And we know what we want and we know what we need. And as is often the case, I try to tell you this all the time, Jesus gives a lot more questions than answers. Here's another question. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, well, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Look, you're the king, and we get it. We're cool with that. But when you come in your kingdom, we would like to be number two and number three. We'll sort that out between the two of us. In fact, you know, it's great if you get most of the glory, but we just want everyone else who's looking at you to worship you out of the periphery of their eyes. We'd like them to see us. We'd just like to be there. What do you you say, Jesus? We know how Babylon works, and we want to be great. Jesus says to them, and I hope you know this, sometimes you ask for things, and Jesus says no, because he's showing you mercy because you don't know what you're asking. That's what happens here. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink or, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they ignorantly and foolishly say we are. Because they don't realize what they're asking. Jesus, knowing what's going to happen, says, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit at my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, let me just lay it out for you. James and John think that Jesus is going to come and become king like every king of Babylon before. And they want to be at his right and left hand, and they want to be great, and they want all the glory. What they don't understand is that Jesus' kingdom is different, and the way God arranges the world is different, and his order is different, but it's the only way that brings life. It doesn't doesn't traffic in death. It traffics in life. And so Jesus' kingdom is going to come when he is lifted up on the cross. Jesus' coronation, his enthronement, is his crucifixion. So James and John are saying, we want to be the thieves crucified on your right and left. That's what they're saying. They don't know they're saying that. They want their own little mini thrones. Jesus says, you don't want that. You don't know what you're asking. My enthronement is coming on a cross. My kingdom comes in a radically different way. And and just lest you think that James and John are the only ones schooled in the ways of Babylon, verse 41, hearing this, the other 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. Why didn't we ask him first? Why did they get there first? And then Jesus begins to teach this upside down wisdom, this wisdom from above. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles in Babylon lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. They get what they can, and they use it to their own advantage. Jesus says, that's not how it's going to be among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you, you can wish to become great. Just know that in my kingdom, you have to be, your, you have to be a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. If you want to be first, you have to learn how to be last. And you think, wow, that's pretty profound wisdom. I don't know how to do that. What does that look like? This is why Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He lives it. 
He lives it. What does he say next? That's what he's going to do. Even the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite way to talk about himself. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. No, no, no. I've always been, Jesus could say. I've been with the Father and the Spirit for eternity in a perfect community of love. But I've, I've entered into this train wreck on earth. <laughs> I'm the firstborn. I'm preeminent. I'm, I'm the supreme. But I entered not to be served, but to serve. And then, again, the cross is at the center to give my life as a ransom for many, for all of you. I mean, this is the wisdom of God. This is the way God orders things. And it takes wisdom. Again, it's not Captain Obvious because we've, we, like James and John and the other disciples, have been so schooled in the ways of Babylon that we almost can't hold what Jesus is saying. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you, there's a piece of you that's like, amen, the first will be last and the last will be first. But when you stop and think about it, you're like, how in the world? How in the world will, if I, if I put myself last, how will I be first? And all I can tell you is that's where the great adventure begins. Because the father, in the same way that he vindicated the son and raised him from the grave, the same power, he will, he will raise you. You lower yourself and then he exalts you. But not in ways that Babylon says is success and exaltation. It's in ways that you, you will know. You'll know in your heart, well, I have, I'm living with peace. And I'm living with purpose. And I know who I am. And I have hope. And man, that was a pretty good interaction with that person. And I was just trying to do what I've learned from Jesus. And it seems like his life is full and satisfying and abundant. And maybe, just maybe, this upside-down wisdom from above is how we all should then live. So that's what we see in Jesus. He's the way of wisdom. And if you want a life filled with peace and purpose, if you want to know more about this abundant life, get to know Jesus. Start talking to Jesus and start doing what he said. <laughs> Follow his example. And it might seem countercultural because it is, but you may discover that life is deeper and fuller than you ever imagined it could be. Amen?